Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today we're going to be delving into making money and innovation with wine and restaurants. Our guest today is Richard Hanauer, who is the partner and wine director at Let Us Entertain You, which includes RPM restaurants and the Oakville Grill and Cellar. Richard, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. And just for listeners, since this is a podcast, it's let us entertain you, but let us being the leafy green vegetable, not let us, the individual words to let us do something. I like to play on words, but maybe you could, uh, Richard, give us a brief overview of your background and what brought you here to talk with us today. Absolutely. So born and raised in Chicago, born into a family that was very much so always celebrating wine at meals and have worked in the Chicago restaurant scene since I was fresh out of college. When I was 24, I got the, this awesome opportunity to become the, the sommelier at True Restaurant in Chicago, which was just this homage to service and, and great wine, a former Grand uh, Award winner. From there, I would go to run the Michelin three-star L2O during its brief run in Chicago and Lincoln Park. And then my next big venture was to work on this awesome project that the company was doing, Let Us Entertain You was doing, which was to open up RPM Steak. RPM Steak was following its sister restaurant, RPM and Italian. And in doing the next step of the brand and doing a steakhouse, there was uh, an emphasis to bring wine to fruition. And I was able to join this amazing team of operators and partners and chefs. And we set off on this trajectory to try to build this incredible brand-wide, intimate, almost kind of, I saw it as revolutionary at the time, wine program. And since then, we've opened five restaurants around the around the country, just filled with the greatest sommeliers and these really concept-driven, but impressive, expansive, and very charismatic wine lists. And then this past spring, in April of 23, we opened up the uh, Oakville Grill and Cellar, which is this great homage to California wine country and the great restaurants that surround the vineyards of the great wine growing valleys. And I've had so much fun doing this like very like bullseye in vision of Napa and its sister regions and bringing their, their hospitality and their culture to life in Chicago's Fulton Market District. Quick question: What does RPM stand for as a as an acronym? I love acronyms, but <laughs> so it was the opening acronym of the initials of the partners, and it's really evolved and set to be the mindset of the brand that we are always moving forward with everything that we're doing, like rounds per minute or, or rotations per minute or whatever the the acronym stands for. Yeah. yeah. So let us entertain you is a much bigger organization. What's the full scope of that? group and how many restaurants and all sorts of things do you have? Let us entertain you. It was opened in the early 70s in Chicago by Rich Melman, who still runs it today. He has handed off the actual operations to the next generation at this point. So RJ Melman is now the president and his two siblings, Jared and Molly, are, are partners on the executive board. And they're now taking lettuce into the future. But lettuce started off as one restaurant, one neighborhood restaurant that then grew to two and then three and then started expanding slowly through the 
the late 70s into the 80s, then really quickly through the 90s. And now we have around 100 restaurants open coast to coast. We are in California. We are in Nevada and Florida and Texas. Illinois and Chicago are, are absolutely our capital and our, our mainstay. And then as far east as uh, Virginia and D.C. as well. I've always viewed Lettuce Entertainment as a family-run company. And I mean that in the most literal sense. It's an absolute company. It's, it's, it's a beautiful organization. We're able to give our employees access to benefits and opportunities that I don't think that most restaurants are able to. We have the great, great divisions within the company and individuals that really focus on real estate or finances or menu development. It's very partitioned into different culinary groups, which is, I think, revolutionary for a restaurant group so that there's, there's absolutely continuity in the, in the hospitality and the service and the respect. But when it comes down to the actual menus, you actually see a lot of diversity, which I think is one of the, the strong suits of Lettuce Entertain You. And the, my great leg up is that, and he'll proudly say it, Rich Melman was never into wine. And that gave me this great opportunity to be very successful with the company and try everything I possibly could to help them out in every turn with every different concept that was opening up along the way. Well, and so how important is beverage and wine to the profitability of the overall business? Well, that's kind of goes back to the ethos of the, the diversity of the company that, you know, we have restaurants that don't sell beverage. We also run markets. We run restaurants where beverage is not the focus point of the meal. And then that's everything gearing up through. We have whiskey and beer-based barbecue restaurants and sake and wine-based Japanese restaurants. And then all of a sudden getting to the grand crown of, you know, we have several steakhouses between RPM Steak and Joe's and the Wildfire team. And, and that's where beverage is, you know, getting up to the almost to get into the lion's share with food of, of sales. So there's a lot of diversity based on the restaurants. All of the sales are obviously important, but it really depends on what projects we're actually looking at, where we can go from 0% of sales all the way up to 50% of sales and everything in between. And is it as simple as to say that the more fine dining it is, the higher percentage of beverage sales? Or is it not, that's, is it a very more by concept if it's Japanese versus Italian or, or whatnot? So in my experience over the past 20 years, I think that was a much safer assumption to say back in the aughts that there was like this big correlation between spending more on fine dining and also spending more on money, spending more on wine at the, at the meal. But I think that is not necessarily being changing as you know the the majority of the the theme. But what we're also starting to see is more casual concepts that are incorporating beverage at a higher end higher end side. And this is, I think, really beverage wide. The big examples I would look at would be seeing the rise of great luxury whiskey in relatively casual barbecue restaurants is really really cool. We've got examples of this new project that we're doing right now uh, that just opened Oakville Grill and Cellar is a very warm but unfancy dining experience with incredible emphasis being put on the wine portion of the meal. So for the most part, yeah, absolutely. The better the restaurant, the more you spend. But we're starting to see a lot of fun where the concepts are 
very casual concepts with heightened culinary, you know, heightened food that's demanding kind of heightened beverage simultaneously. And also the inverse of that, you know, as well, where the food can be just the destination at this point. Oh, that's interesting. So you have such an expansive network of restaurants and even clubs and and other things. Do you have a sense of just how much wine goes through your system every year? Yes, we absolutely do have like a very, very finite. It's not a guess. We know, we know precisely. And I, I would rather not say what lettuce is, is spending on, on wine per year. The fun part to it is how much it's grown and how fast it's been in watching the, the beverage revolution, seeing it go from a single digit percentage of our sales now screaming into the high teens and low 20s. That's including all restaurants, some that don't even drink, some that are, you know, restaurant concepts as well. So we've seen definitely over double and near a triple in just decades alone in the what it's denting into the revenue, which is pretty, pretty wonderful. And I am lucky to be associated with Lettuce. Thankfully, we're doing pretty well. And one of the fun parts is I get to spend just an absolute treasure's worth of gold in, uh, in wine every, every day, week, month, and year. Nice. I, I guess I was also thinking just in terms of volume like cases, but I, that obviously will skew when it comes to revenue to, depending on how high end the wine is versus low end. But yeah, is it given there's such a diversity of restaurants, is it do you move a lot more volume of bottles at the, the lower end or the, the higher end of the wine spectrum? Oh, it's like it is very, very, very much so a inverted exponential little curve the less it costs, we naturally move so much of it. And the more it costs, we will naturally move less and less of it. We are never going to be putting our guests in a position where we're putting price in front of quality. So that's not a concern. There's absolutely an aggressive effort made to get the pricing down as much as possible. But it's really when it comes to volume inside of restaurants, it's really the wine by the glass programs. And within the wine by the glass program, when you start to look at the very popular wines right now that are usually at their lowest segment, lowest price point on the menu, that's where we're starting to see the great case movement. So like a great example right now, I'm going to use RPM Seafood, which is in its absolute peak of season right now, it's July and it's it's a it's on the Chicago River and all of its patios are open and the restaurant's going really late at night. So Pinot Grigio, the least expensive white wine on the menu, is getting sold almost four to one, five to one less than our Sancerre is by the glass on the menu. So the Sancerre at almost double the price of the Pinot Grigio still moves a lot more because it's Sancerre at a seafood restaurant. But that's a little bit more of like a blip on the graph and which are celebrated in our world, frankly. But if you look at the sparkling wine product mix or P-mix, as we would say, then you start to see a little bit more of a natural curve to it where Prosecco is going to be driving the boat and then it's going to come champagne and then it's going to come vintage champagne. And it's not a very like regulated and expected part of the business as well. What role do you think wine plays in the overall dining experience? So it depends where you are, right? Like if I am in a restaurant that doesn't care about their wine program in the sense that, you know, the menu is inaccurate, they're serving it in, in a coffee mug, I'm trying to be, you know, overly dramatic here. Uh, the wine's coming out, you know, 
hot, then I'm going to be so happy drinking beer that night. Sweet, sweet, delicious beer. And that doesn't matter. I'm not going to let my meal like detract. And you certainly don't need wine to have these epic dining experiences. But in the like the depths of my soul, if you are eating and drinking wine simultaneously, you are dining. It is such an incredible way to do a meal. Everyone is sharing in this this one experience simultaneously and experiences the ebbs and the flows of of the flavors and the meal. And what I've really become to like appreciate is that you don't need to know anything about wine or food just to find a, a meal to be delicious or or more delicious than you were expecting. And just letting that bottle sneak into the meal really, I, I believe, elevates that opportunity. You know, and we've all had like those great meals where we've been sipping tequila with friends at the taqueria. And that's all part of like woven into the same story. But I love wine. And there to me, it is the ultimate expression of dinings when you're, you're having great wine with great people, and it's tying into the experience at large. And to that, I think that's as good as it gets. And we really try to sell that, that belief to as many people that are willing to drink it as well. So given the number of restaurants that you have that sell wine, have you found that wine can actually be a differentiator to drive customers to the restaurant? 100%. 100, 100%, 100%. I think that the bigger thing, though, is that it doesn't necessarily always drive people to the restaurant. It drives them back to the restaurant. I think that so many of our guests, you think of just a, a deuce. Well, that's 50% of that table is responsible for making the reservation. And a three top, it's 33. And you get to a four top, it's 25. So, so many people that the table didn't choose that restaurant to begin with. And the people that did, usually they're choosing it because of the, the menu, the seasonality, the what's available at the time. And when you go into a restaurant and you turn over the menu and you see the wine list or you open up the book or the, the server starts telling you about the daily wine specials and it's keened in that it's interesting and it's passionate and everything else about the meal is enjoyable. It's like, it's a reason to go back. It's a, it's a safety spot. It's, a, it's an extra, extra ingredient into you know, the, a great recipe. And so do you think what drives them back is the great wine list or is it the experience of a single bottle of wine that, that is like, oh, I want to have this specific thing again? You know, I wish, like, I want to romanticize it like that, but I think that wine is a little bit more subjective. You know, I think that when you have that great bottle moment, you, in my opinion, in my experience, it's not the guests that are coming back for that bottle. They're actually coming back to the person that recommended them that bottle. They want to see the witch doctor and they want to be put under that same spell, you know, and it's, it's so hard. And when lightning strikes twice, like you're dealing with some talent at that point behind the wine key. So I think that also to answer the other part of the question that it's not just the wine list. It's such an important part of the meal, but everything about restaurants is so incredibly team driven. I'm not going to be excited to come back to the restaurant where the food was okay, but the wine was great. You know, I'm, I'm not going to come back to the restaurant that forgot my appetizer, but the wine was great. I want to come back to the restaurant where I had a great bottle of wine and had a great meal simultaneously. And in knowing that that wine program exists just really heightens my excitement a little bit more. And we do get a lot of people that do come in for the wine programs, and we've got really destination-worthy menus. But once you get in those seats and you get these big leather bound books handed to you and the ultra light Australian crystal and this, 
the beaming smile on the sommelier and you get the art of the decanting. Like it's, it's exciting, but it's delicious. And it just satiates so many curiosities. I love what we're doing at, at some of our, at the restaurants with wine right now. So given the number of restaurants you have, like how do you define a good wine list? This has changed so much. When I was getting into wine, a good wine list was big, robust, verticals of great European producers focusing on impeccable vintages. And that's what a great wine list was. You know, the bigger your DRC collection was, the better your wine list was, you know, X equaled Y kind of thing. And I think through travel and something we're doing a really good job about adjusting with our restaurants is it's not about the quality of the list. It's about how the program fits into the restaurant. And if I am going to open up a Pedmontese restaurant with all the plein and truffles when they're in season that you could ever, ever hope for, I'm not going to think about putting in Brunello de Montalcino's and Fiano's and white burgundies anymore. I want to be authentic. I want to be like the restaurants are in Piedmont, where they are treasure troves of their region, because that's what makes the meal and the wine dining, is having the is smelling the Barolo while you're chewing on truffles, which I think might be the best pairing of them all. So that's what I think is really makes a, a wine program great in a restaurant. One, it has to be well-run. You need good stemware. You don't need expensive stemware. You just can't have bad stemware. Your wine needs to be at temperature and matching the menu. And past that, you just have to be complementary to the food. And you're great. It's simple, but it gets harder as the cuisine gets more focused. So you need a good champagne list too for the Piedmontese restaurants since you all the restaurants a, there have like great champagne. <laughs> you know, it's the craziest part. It's when you're when you're traveling anywhere in Italy, whether it be the restaurants or the wine shops, it's the wines of that region and champagne. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's really impressive. So you mentioned, you know, the importance of the uh, person behind the wine key. What role does a sommelier play in the overall dining experience? I am nothing without my sommeliers and my wine directors. And I mean, I am nothing. These are the talent. These are the workforce. These are the witch doctors of the meal. I think that a good sommelier can, just like any other talented member of a service staff, but a, a good sommelier can make such a such an impact at the table. And it's been such an awesome ride to be a sommelier over the past 20 years and just see every generation getting stronger, wiser, smarter, better than the generation that came before. I think there's a great debate on the golden age of wine and when it occurred, whether 19th century, current age, 1990s, but in, in my experience, the golden age of sommelier, like we are living it. And the ones that work for the company are, they're just so awe-inspiring. They might, my hat forever off to them and the way that they can shape a great meal. And is their role limited to wine service and food and wine pairing? Or do they play a more expansive role in the context of the restaurant and, and of a meal? So much more expansive. 
one on like an operational side because they're not just there pulling pulling the corks. I mean, before they ever get to the corks, there's a the intricate binning of the wine, the storage system, the work that's going on in the cellar with the cellar team. They're ordering the wine, they're tasting the wine, they're writing the menus, they're printing the menus, they're stuffing the menus. The what they're doing on a daily basis to get their wine program ready to be serviced is is so so impressive. And once the gates open, when the restaurant opens, the sommelier's responsibility is to sell wine. And that's their focus, but that's not how restaurants operate, right? Like as guests, we all know that we make our reservations in 15-minute intervals. Restaurants are constantly working in these 15-minute intervals or in these waves going through it. First, the bar is going to get hit, then garmage is going to get hit, then pasta is going to get hit, then grill as it goes through the restaurant. So we have peaks and valleys during service. And the second the sommelier isn't involved with wine, they're hospitalians and they will address any task they can, running, busing, seating, working with a guest, escorting a guest. You cannot be a great sommelier if you are not an epical hospitalian. You may be talented with wine. But these are black and white and, and, and entirely different concepts. And every day, like every day, get inspired by some of the acts of, of servitude that our, our team puts on for our guests. So how does a good sommelier improve the business of a restaurant? So to be really frank with you, thinking about my strongest impacting sommeliers, they were great at building relationships. They built relationships with wineries, which allowed for unique, limited pours or better value pours to be brought into the restaurant. That alone, like just shaping the menu and shaping the experience for the guest. And then what they're doing table side is really important. But as a company, we're not focusing on the sale. We want to do what's right. And we want to get the guest into the right bottle, not the most expensive bottle. And doing so, we believe, gets the guest to come back. And that's really so, like, you'd like to think that a great sommelier is going to add two or three thousand dollars, you know, per restaurant, per store. And that absolutely does happen because, like, when your eyes light up and you can see a true professional gets really excited about a product. You get excited as well, but it's really, it's, it's, it's making the relationships more than anything else, whether it be the distributors, the winemakers themselves, or maybe most importantly, the guests, that's where we see them making the most impact because that's where the real revenue stream starts to get impacted. And you could get really lucky. And so to speak, you have a guest that spends a 500 or a thousand dollars on a bottle of wine, which is a lot inside of a restaurant. And then they have a good relationship with a sommelier. They're just texting back and forth for their restaurant reservations and they're coming in you know, on a regular basis. And when you're doing this nationwide, you start to really see the percolation come up from all the sales purely based on the hospitality of that initial first visit. And so do customers get attached to specific sommeliers? You said they're texting them or whatnot, or do they associate the wine experience more with the venue? Usually more with the venue, but like I laugh because I can't, I can't tell you the amount of times where a teammate will ask me to go to a table and they'll because the table's requesting the sommelier and I'll get there and you know they'll say, Oh, you're not Joe or you're not John or you're not Lindsay, you know, and they're they're upset and then there's a pause where it's clear they're expecting me to walk away and go get them. You know, and it's it's oftentimes that I've got to like deliver the, the bad news like, sorry, you know, it's a day off. How can I assist you? And so that is like there's absolutely an affinity because we 
you know, I don't think it matters what part of where we are in the in the world on a given day, just interacting with someone that gives us great service feels great. We're always trying to always trying to replicate it. I don't know what it's like for Let Us Entertain You, but I've certainly seen anecdotally, at least in the Bay Area and New York and other places, that sommeliers tend to change restaurants fairly frequently. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the I don't know what the average lifetime is, but maybe or li- job length is, but maybe it's like eighteen months or something like. It's kind of like high tech. It's a very quick turnover. Does how does that impact then those relationships? So two things. So pre-COVID. It was actually spot on. It was exactly 18 months for the the wine steward nationwide sommelier position. So I will answer your question and, and then be like more direct with you. Number one, it's a terrible thing. When that happens, you have to retrain someone, which is a big expense. You have to retrain on culture, which it can take six, nine, 12 months to get a new teammate really up to speed. As you're retraining someone, you are sacrificing growth simultaneously. If I'm focusing on X, then I'm not focusing on Y instead. And for that reason, we found a better way. Our company does not believe in turnover. Obviously, it's a part of restaurant operations. It happens. But we do what we believe are the right things to retain our employees. I try to treat every single one of them the way that they want to be treated. They're very, very well compensated. Going back to Lettuce is both family run and a company run. It's They're backed by a great HR program and 401k and insurance. And we try to provide a job that there's no reason to leave. And then on top of that, the best part about being an employee for the company is that we have so many different restaurants, we have the ability to grow you. So my favorite story right now, the the gentleman, the wine director for RPM Wine right now, Joseph Lappy, we opened up RPM Steak almost 10 years ago. He comes in as a bartender. He works really, really hard in the wine training components. There's a sommelier opening. He's been very aggressive that he wants this role. He gets into this role. He dedicates himself fully into it. He starts to get very, very good. He's working with a very talented wine director at the time. The brand expands, and we open up the RPM Seafood Complex, which has Pizzeria Portofino and uh, an events program behind it. He was in the right mindset and skill set to take on that job. So he goes from the sommelier of that restaurant to the wine director of this brand new restaurant that we're building, which is an impeccable, impeccable wine list. Uh, his marks on it are were just obscene. And from there, for running that program through a couple of years and steering RPM through COVID successfully, he then became the RPM wine director. So we've had an employee who has worked so hard, is so talented, his growth was very, very natural. So instead of at the 18-month mark where it was time for him to get a new job, the enterprises or the restaurant group was always able to provide the appropriate growth. And that's been our secret to retaining employees. Uh, it's this mixture of growth and treatment. So yeah, it's an epic issue in, inside the restaurant at large. And we invest and do everything we can not to deal with it. Uh, that's that's a great opportunity, I think, for Psalms. Is there, when you look at a restaurant, maybe more for fine dining, ones that actually employ some ways, is there a ratio of how many Psalms you need for how many tables or seats you have? So there is the average fine dining restaurant has 24 tables and like give or take. And usually one sommelier is responsible for about 12 tables inside of a 
of a dining room. So that's like the fine dining kind of like base recipe. But it also has to deal with the days of the week and how many sommeliers are on schedule and how many days your restaurant is open. So if you look at like the great three stars, France, you know, you have your chef sommelier and your sommeliers all working Monday through Friday on the same day. And it's the same coverage all throughout the week. You move to a Chicago fine dining restaurant and now you're talking about 14 shifts through the week. And now you're talking about three sommeliers. And that's a, a pretty big expenditure to have double coverage Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. So most fine dining restaurants tend to operate with a wine director and a sommelier. And the more successful ones will add more people into the wine program. But there's always, or usually I would say, someone in that cellar as well on the wine team. The real like unsung hero that is keeping everyone organized, keeping the navel of the machine functioning. And when a guest walks into a restaurant and doesn't interact with a sommelier and and just says a bin number back to a, a server and the server puts the bin number into the point of sales computer and two minutes later that bottle pops up at the right temperature and the right vintage and the right vineyard, that is the hard work of the seller team. And just they are so integral as well. So let's uh, jump into pricing a little bit. You know, one of my my things is knowing enough about wine. Like you can see really ranges how restaurants approach wine pricing in terms of their mm-hmm. markup that they apply to it. Some restaurants it's just fixed linear ratio and others, you know, they, they kind of dial it in by price points. But I'm curious on how does wine pricing impact a restaurant's bottom line for you? So the wine pricing we want to make as much money on wine like as we possibly can, right? Like we'd like to make as much money in, in, in any other segment as possible. But the wine pricing has to deal with the growth of the restaurant and the needs of the restaurant. So the biggest expense that anything that, we're, that, that we can't avoid is rent, right? And what you're paying in rent really is going to dictate your cost of goods and wine. Kind of like just straight up there's a correlation there are miracle isolations you know that are doing 50 percent with these these trophy addresses but for the most part the more you're paying in rent the more you're going to have to mark up all of your costs not just your wine the problem with wine is that different than cocktails where everything's getting blended together and different than a plate of food where everything gets blended together the consumer is very cognizant of what that bottle costs inside of a retail store. And it really becomes this barometer for markups to a lot of educated guests out there. So the real dance begins in how do you have your cost of goods going down while your prices aren't going up? And that cycles all the way back to the relationships game. And so if you can open a restaurant that is a place where a winery wants their wines to be or believes if their wines are on that menu, they'll be seen as better or more successful in the right states, that winery can sell you your wine for less. And that's what so many of these, so many of these, these sommeliers, you know, that are, what's their value to the restaurant? This is a big chunk of it, are these relationships with the wineries where we can actually buy the wine for what, less than we should be so that we don't have to increase our markup on it while simultaneously achieving a better cost of good. And cost of goods in the restaurant game, I mean, it's the pulse. It's a, a daily check-in on how you're doing. And do you find that customers are sensitive to margins on wine? 
Or and does that vary by like by the glass versus a bottle? I would say that customers are way more sensitive to wine prices than any other prices that we're dealing with, frankly. And not and the majority of them aren't. The majority of the majority of them appreciate that they we run a bar and there's a bartender and we have a glass and they're putting it in the glass and the glass is clean because we have a dishwasher and it it's not speckled because we have a polisher and it's it's racked because we have a stocker and that delivering you that glass of wine wasn't about what the bottle costed, but everything that goes into, you know, the bottle being served to you before we even get to the electricity and the overhead. So most customers are the 99.9 bar are just downright appreciative. And then you have some that are like, that are vocal about, about the pricing. And we can do our very, very best to like reassure them that this is genuinely not just a great bottle of wine, but a, a great wine service as well. And is that sensitivity more seen in the by the glass price or in the in the entire bottle price? You know, in my experience, almost exclusively in the bottle game and not in the BTG game. But the majority of our guests that are getting bottles are more knowledgeable about our guests at large. They're getting wine by the glass as well. So I think there is more more ignorance on the BTG consumer than there is on the bottle consumer. The other thing is like I've tried so hard with everything we do to bring in new and, and exciting and, and upcoming wines and small farms that aren't in Chicago grocery stores and big box retailers or our retailing chain. And one, yes, 100%, I'm more comfortable with my markup because they're not aware of the price. But two, the reality, the guest is also ignorant to the price. So any negative value isn't contributing to their experience. So bringing in and like caring passionately about what you're serving and not just checking off that they make 100,000 cases, we should have them, will also help a lot in your perception of value. Got it. So one thing you had mentioned before is that historically lists are about like these deep vintages of things and stuff like that. A lot of times when you're building those giant lists, you're carrying a lot of inventory. But given what you just talked about, inventory and rent, as you go higher up in that value chain, does your pricing philosophy change because you want to move the wines in terms of your ratio that you're going to get from a a lower end bottle versus a premium bottle? 100%. And we have to. And the reason that I say that we have to is if we were to market some of our most most sought after unicorns, some of our, our truly great treasures, these things would be costing in the in the fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollar range, and they would become just unsellable, and they would add no no joy to the the wine list, and they shouldn't even be on the wine list. You shouldn't ever have a wine you're not going to open. So yeah, there is definitely some flex towards marking up rarer wines less because they inherently cost so much that a lower markup is just still very profitable for the restaurant. And how do you think about pricing to maximize the long-term business of the restaurant as it relates to wine? That is the golden question right now. There's not a second of my day where I don't think about this in depth. Wine is getting so much more expensive rapidly across all segments. And the problem with pricing, in my opinion, isn't the, the cost of the bottle. It's the, the entire supply chain that gets it to the restaurant. So we've got to get it from the winery, through the importer, through the distributor, and then to the restaurant. And everyone is marking up 
that increase in price coming out of the winery. So a $2 price on a bottle of wine can easily add $20 to the end result once it gets into the restaurant. So it's not just the restaurants contributing to this, but I'm I'm highly worried that we are getting to a place and we're not near that. We're so, so not there yet. Just where this graph is going, I am worried that we're going to get to a point in a place where one can afford to drink in a restaurant will not be bringing them value like it did earlier in their life. And that is mostly wrapped up in in that supply chain where it's not just the winery and the restaurant dealing with the cost of this item. And we haven't seen it. It's not happening in the restaurants yet, but that is my big fear that that could be you know, within the next decades. So you recently launched the Oakville Grill and Cellar, a new concept you talked about that has a heavy wine focus. Could you explain to our listeners what the Oakville is and how it's different from other restaurants? Yeah, so the Oakville is a California wine area-themed restaurant. So we are not a a wine-themed restaurant. We're a wine-growing-themed restaurant. So I think that the big deal is that, like, it is inherent that we we are going to have great wine there, but you know it's it's not just the grapes that are growing to the the utmost in vineyards. So there there's so much more than wine at the restaurant. So when we opened up RPM Steak, I was coming out of really elevated Francophile style fine dining French driven wine lists, and if you are going to run a successful steakhouse in Chicago, you better believe in the ethos of like a great steak and a great Cabernet Sauvignon, the slab in the cab, as our community calls it. So I had to start going to Napa regularly to learn authentically and to get access into the bottles that weren't available wholesale in Chicago to make the programs more authentic. And every time I was going out there, I was going out there for vineyards and vintners and nothing else. And slowly over the years, Myself and our partners, we started realizing that as we were going out there, we were having these amazing, amazing meals at the end of the day. And they were never pretentious. They were never formal. They were never chic. They were very comfortable. They were very pleasurable. They were elevated in service and quality of food, but rarely in decor. And it was this great marriage of awesome, awesome food with awesome service, but in a much calmer, uncompetitive dining room. And we had these great plates. And of course, like anytime you're dining in wine country, the wine programs are your best in show for that, that, that category of wine list. And we wanted to replicate that. And that's what the Oakville is all about. We named it the Oakville. We we are all about California, but in the reality, we're, we're more settled in Northern California. We're very inspired by Napa Valley, both inside on the menu, inside the decor of the restaurant. The wine list is an homage to all California things, and it goes as far south as Santa Barbara and all far north as Mendocino from the Pacific Ocean all the way to the Sierra foothills, covering every varietal, but then has just this uh, really, really incredible collection of Napa wines within it as well. So how has the reception from customers been like so far on the Oakville and what feedback have they given you that's been the most useful in improving it? So I uh, was not ready for the consumer appreciation of the restaurant. We opened the Oakville in the last week of April 
And knock on wood, we have been nonstop ever since then. The customer appreciation is the coolest part. I think that everyone that's been to Napa and Sonoma and Paso appreciates what quality vacation that is. And no difference than going to Florence or Provence. They carry the the reputation and the pride within that name that if you haven't been, you very much understand this is probably something you want to be doing. So the a huge, huge draw towards the restaurant based on the style of it. From a wine side, the Oakville is really cool because it changes the game for domestic guests in the sense that the entire wine program, every drop of wine in the Oakville is from California. We don't leave the state. We don't have champagne. We don't have port. We don't have sauterne. It's 100% California wine. But the wine list, every single customer that we have domestically, so to speak, speaks the language. Everyone can interchange with the sommelier candidly and openly. No one is embarrassed that they're going to mispronounce Vino Noble de Montepulciano. No one is embarrassed that they don't know the grape, you know, when the wine says Chianti Classico on it. It's out there and we can and we can talk about it. So it's become this incredibly, incredibly interactive wine service. And the by the glass is what you is is I think as as creative and, and diverse as it should be for a wine with a, a restaurant with such great winery vibes. But the book and the service have been like my most enjoyable part so far. How has the cellar door worked out? This is a little tasting room inside the restaurant. Yeah, very cool. So the cellar door is our wine tasting studio within the Oakville Grill and Cellar. And came up with this fun concept because I genuinely love going to, I love being with, when I go to wine country, I am nerding out at the highest level, you know, picking grapes and and thieving out of barrels. But I also love going with my wife and with friends and doing the more traditional visits where going and tasting wines in these really, really relaxing environments is, is destination worthy. And I wanted to recreate that. So what we do is every month, it's a six-person tasting suite. It's beautifully designed. It's, 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 it's really comfortable. Every month, we partner with a different winery in California, and we recreate their current tasting room menu down to vineyard vintage price and everything. We offer the wines from the tasting retail packaged appropriately. There's a, an incredible food component done by our chef team. And it gives you a opportunity to be in Chicago. And for those that don't know, we don't do wine. We don't grow grapes. We can't even joke about it. It's just, it's a not thing here. We're thousands of miles away from any wine country, not vineyard wine country at large. So it gives guests an opportunity to go to a wine tasting in Chicago and to do it super authentically. And my favorite part is that the, um, the great sommelier team at the Oakville is either flying out to the winery or one of the leads of the winery is flying into Chicago and they're going through the same training. So in that brief month period while we're hosting a winery, it is a very, very real, genuine experience for that vineyard. And and is the goal to then do the tasting and sell the wine like you would if you were going to a wine tasting in Napa? Yeah. We offer guests the ability to sign up for the winery in Napa. You know, we offer guests the ability to take bottles home. We encourage them to come back, you know, in subsequent months for new experiences as well. Like it's, it's that feeling of being on a great 
patio in the Russian River Valley with your friends and drinking wine and, and just being in that little piece of paradise, just getting that opportunity again. And then it really happens during COVID, such a craving for experiences inside of restaurants, alternative to the meal itself. So we wanted to give the neighborhood this experience. It's, it's not a wine bar. It's much more genuine than that. And with only six seats, how many people can you see in the cellar door in a given year? God, in the given year, I'd have to do the math on. So we're doing, you know, ideally we do four seatings uh, every night. We do a four, five thirty-seven, and eight thirty seating. We're a twenty-four guests per seating, and we're currently doing five days a week. So a hundred and twenty seatings a week over four weeks. You're at four hundred and eighty. So give the fifth week a shout out that pops in every once in a while. So we're around 500, 500 guests a month would be the target. Okay. But that's for the overall Oakville grill and cellar, not just the, not just the cellar door. No, right? that cellar door, 500 just cellar, guests. Uh, 500 guests. Okay. Got it. I okay. mean, if we were to maximize seating, you know, doing that's that's six guests at four seatings a day, five days a week, four weeks a month. And then I did some rough math and gave 20 extra seatings to the 29th, 30th and 31st. So how does the business relationship work with the wineries featured in the cellar door? Do you, people can take it home with them, but is it, are they actually buying it from the Oakville or are they buying it from the winery? So you can't buy it from the winery. When we, when I was concepting the cellar door, that was my goal. I wanted it to be so authentic that you would fill out the paperwork and then the wines would show up to you, you know, at your door but to go back and fetch about the three-tier system and the, and all the markups, that's impossible. So the wine has to be sold at the restaurant that night through the Oakville. But what we do just to keep the experience authentic for the guest is we always mark up the wine exactly how it's marked up outside at the wineries' websites. And so how do you choose which wineries get featured in the Cellar Door? So Cellar Door, you've got to have, there are a couple of criteria that you have to hit. Number one, the pricing has to work in the sense that we can't do something where, say, every bottle costs $5, and then we would do the experience for $25, and then the restaurant's really not making enough money, that the labor and the lights are worth it. Subsequently, we can't do anything where every winery's bottle costs you know, $200, because we can't pull this off for an amount that people want to, that everybody is comfortable paying. So the pricing has to fit into a pretty loose dialed in window. We do adjust pricing. It's just, we can't take the two bookends more or less. After that, your winery has to produce an interesting menu. So I can think of like some of the great wineries of California that make just one or two wines a year. And although those one or two wines a year are absolutely amazing, that doesn't satiate someone's tasting experience. Likewise, if the winery only makes one style of wine, I only make Cabernet, these vintages, tasting just just one grape from one vintage isn't you know terribly exciting. So we like to find wineries that are in the right price point and have a natural diversity of menu that makes for an interesting tasting. And then after that, we want to make sure that there's a pedigree that we believe in, that it's a business partner we have to partner with people that we want to be partners with. And then the last thing, which is actually like kind of the most frustrating part, is it's got to make sense for the Chicago seasonality. So we want to be doing lighter bodied grapes and white wines, sparkling wines more in the hotter months and rosés, and then 
moving into the fuller-bodied Oakville, Rutherford, Calistogas uh, more in the wintertime as well. So it, it's not like, it's also, frankly, like at the end of the day, it's like, I love this winery and everything that they do works in our, you know, our system. Let's do them because I want to do these guys. I've worked with them for so many years and I love telling the stories. So passion, I think at the end of the day is really going to also, you know, it's going to be the, the ultimate decision maker. And is it all of California or is there, you mentioned that Oakville has a heavy Napa focus. Is it mostly Napa? Cellar Door is open to all of California. Our opening winery was Robertsinski Vineyards and they are Napa. Winery number two was Ridge. And not one wine that we're doing, uh, the Ridge Vineyards menu is from Napa Valley. So immediately that changes. Winery number three is going to be Paul Hobbs. So kind of equal focus on Sonoma and, and equal focus on Napa. And then I believe that I'm going to do this cool Oakville winery after that called Hoops. So at this point, we're going to get bullseyed in and, you know, and do a namesake winery after that. And so do these wineries appear more prominently in the rest of Oakville during that month tenure or the time afterwards? Because clearly there's some passion for them. Do they survive on the list or are they buy the glass afterwards? No, they're actually always by the glass during to promote the cellar door and make sure that every bottle, every drop of wine ends up, you know, in someone's belly. We offer all of our cellar doors by the glass on the back of the by the glass menu throughout the run of the month. And then the next month we will change over to by the glass of the, the subsequential winery. Coincidentally, we had a rosé on our menu that we had from the old oldest winery, just from guest reception. People loved it that much. We wanted to keep going with it. But anytime that anyone's going to go on the cellar door, their wines have been on the menu before because we believe in them and we want to celebrate them. And they're going to be on the menu after. Got it. And so I assume wine is a much bigger part of the revenue and profits of the Oakville versus other restaurants, or is it that actually not the case? Wine at the Oakville is a huge part of its revenue stream. There are other restaurants that aren't so overtly concepted where it also plays a really big component as well. But yeah, so many so many guests, I think, walk in the door with an expectation to relive their, their bottles of wine that they have at the restaurants in, uh, in wine country. Got it. So stepping a little bit back into the big picture... What do you see as the most important wine trends for restaurants over the next two to three years? So I'll speak from direct experience here. So I'm finding the most important, and we we talked about this earlier, the most important trend for restaurants moving forward is authenticity. And one, it inherently is going to make the diner's meal more delicious. Having Aglianico with your Neapolitan pizza is a good thing. You know, it's going to tie the room together, so to speak. But the other thing is that wine's getting much more expensive. And consumers are looking that on that as how it's hitting their their bill in the, in the restaurants at the end of the meal. But another component is how we see it as operators is the cost of getting a, a seller off the ground. And as I'm opening a new restaurant and I can stay hyper-focused on the cuisine or the concept, and not try to have a you know that great wine list with great Bordeaux and Burgundy and Rhone and Alsace just because it's it's a great wine list. Then I don't have to buy those, and in not having to buy those, I can save a lot on my investment. I mean, 
hundreds upon hundreds of thousands on my investment. And simultaneously, if I'm running a more precise wine program, then I'm running a smaller seller. If I'm running a smaller seller, my seller is eating up less square footage inside of my restaurant, which means there is more square footage to put tables into as well. So there is definitely, I think, going to be a big expansion into really honed in schematic wine programs moving moving forward would be the what actually excites me the most. But is that going to make then huge legacy programs like a Burns Steakhouse even more special? Yeah, 100%. Because Burns, you can't remake Burns. No one is going to put a $40, $50 million, that is just a raw guess, obviously, of their current value. No one's going to make that investment into a restaurant anymore. You can't earn that back. Because if the amount of people that can afford to drink wines in the thousand dollar mark can't fill up a dining room big enough, you know. So there's a reason that the smaller dining rooms have the bigger wine lists. It's where the guests that can afford these products end up end up, end up going. So I don't think we're going to ever see anything on that scope on a mass scale. I do think that once every blue moon something's going to percolate, emulating the the wine programs of old, but like. It's too vast. It's, it's so expensive at this point. We'd like to end each episode on a personal note. What was the most memorable wine you've had in the last year, and who did you drink it with? All right. So I'm going to bend the, the rules and not do the last year. I'm going to do the last three years, if that's okay. All right. It was such a remarkable experience. There are no favorites, but this was a, a pretty special moment. So when I first got into wine in Chicago, when I was waiting tables in the early aughts, uh, the first bottle that I ever bought to like really lay down and enjoy in the future, and this was after really getting into studying and, and I was so enthusiastic and passionate and ignorant, was the Chachi Piccolomini Aragona 2001 Reserve Pianorosa. And you know, I went to Home Depot and I bought like the wine cooler and I would move apartments a couple times and then, you know, eventually move into our current house and everywhere I moved, the wine cooler and the wine moved with me. And it was always the first bottle in my cellar. And it was uh, great vintage, great wine. It was going to be awesome no matter what. And we ended up opening it with my sommelier team during the pandemic on an outdoor patio roof. And it was such a, a, a confluence of emotions. It was the first time the entire RPM wine team had been together since the restaurants closed due to pandemic. And likewise, if the restaurants were open, we could never all be together. Half of us would be working the floor at some point. And it was sharing this first bottle I'd ever bought and cellared that turned out to be amazing with my wine team who didn't professionally exist in my imagination when I bought the bottle. And it was this confluence of, uh, you know, watching my career grow and and the complexities that came with it as the wine improved with time simultaneously. And and to share it with my team when I had, had bought it at, at such an early onset in my career, and while the wine showed so gorgeously, it was such a, an emotional moment. And it didn't take place this year, but it was definitely the most memorable bottle I've had in a, a long time. And I think it's going to probably go unchallenged for eight decades to come. That sounds like a pretty magical wine and magical experience. So thanks for sharing. And thanks so much for all your time and insight into everything restaurants and wine. Our pleasure. Come give us a visit. Thank you so much for having us and uh, hope to talk again soon. 
Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.